are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. All right. Our teaching text today comes from Galatians 5 verses 22 through 26. Y'all ready? Okay. So it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. I feel that air kicking in to the glory of the Lord. (laughs) I am what we call a free sweater. Once it stops, once it starts, it's just not good. It's just not good. Um... Friends, it's so good to be with you. We are wrapping up today our series, Free People, uh, which, if you haven't been here, essentially it's been this look at Galatians 5. And so we've talked about things like the Judaizers here in Galatians. There's a small uh, community of Jews within the early Christian church in the churches of Galatia that are spreading this, this gospel plus, gospel plus circumcision, gospel plus adherence to the law. And we have circumcision as this proxy for justification. And so there's this this pull, particularly on the Gentile members, to fold back in to the Judaical ways so that they can find salvation. And Paul is speaking out against this, right? And then also we talked about how last week Ryan told us about the flesh and how Paul says in this dichotomy, which we're going to touch on a little bit more. But we're not just wrapping up this series today. We're actually also wrapping up a six-month arc of teaching that we've been in. And it's been centered around these three movements. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, but namely those movements were unpacking the stories we lived. How do we go backwards in order to go forward? How do we look at the trauma and the things and the, the incongruence of the world, the things that call us to question our faith and to question the Lord, to question ourselves? And how do we then follow the Lord in through a process of restoration, Right? And then we moved on from there into the second arch where we examined the stories that we're living. And so we took stock using the Genesis narratives to understand, am I living a life that is bringing me life or am I living a life that is producing death? And so we use the Genesis narratives to see the cycle of sin and death. And then now we've been for the last seven, six weeks in this, the back half, that last movement, which has been perceiving the invitations that God wants to give us into the stories he wants to tell. What is God trying to do in and through us? And that's where we've been, and this is where we are. And I just want to wrap this all up right off the top with the invitation. The invitation, the hope has been over the last six months that you have taken stock of your life. The places that you've been, the things that you've experienced, 
that you've surrendered to God any pain and trauma and the things that you've been working through, that you've allowed him to speak into that and to call you into a restorative process. And then we hope that you will say, hey, man, I'm looking at my life and either it's, it's bringing me life or not, but if it's not bringing me life, I want to receive the story, the invitation to life. And the invitation as a pastoral unit that we believe that the Lord is giving us is in, he is inviting you to join the story of a free people. A free people. And that freedom, that freedom is best understood is not in what you must do, but in what you don't have to do. I can be free to spend a million dollars. But if in order to have the freedom to spend a million dollars, I must gain three million dollars, it's not much freedom. But what am I free to no longer have to do? Well, we no longer have to live under impossible rules and regulations like the Levitical system, designed to show us that rules could never save us. We don't have to be under the burden of generating our own salvation because, frankly, try as we might, I think we all can attest, it just doesn't work. And we don't have to be under a cycle of brokenness perpetuated by being ruled by our own base desires and our vices. Instead, we are invited to live under life-expanding boundaries, free to receive the justifying, sanctifying grace secured in Jesus' death and resurrection. And we become generous benefactors of the attributes of Jesus' way of living. This is what Galatians 5 is about, this invitation. For freedom, Christ has set you free. This is how the chapter begins. And Paul goes on from there to talk about what has been enslaving us, namely our own base desires, which he labels the flesh. So Paul divides these concepts of this invitation, denying the flesh, receiving the spirit. And last week, Ryan unpacked this Pauline view of the flesh, and so we're not going to go through that all over again, but I do encourage you to go back to listen to it, but I do want to, before we unpack the fruit of the spirit, just, just kind of this aspect, two observations of the flesh that I want to name before you so that we can properly understand this invitation that's been given us. So if we go in the middle of the chapter, we have this Pauline discourse on living in the flesh versus living by the Spirit. And then he gives this explainer of what exactly it looks like to live by the flesh. Starts in verse 19, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he lists right off the top these three, sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery. Now, I don't want us to get caught up in the surface descriptions. Because I think there's something deeper here about what Paul is naming before these churches of Galatia. Yes, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery on their face are works of the flesh. But deeper, all of these things point to ways in which we seek to please ourselves and experience the intimacy that we rightly need. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery are the ways in which we seek to please ourselves and experience the intimacy that we need. And I mean need, because it's very interesting if you go back to Genesis 2, in a perfect world that is teeming with good relationships. There's God and man and creation, and yet this man is alone, and you would say that doesn't he have all he needs? There's no sin. There's an entire world to roam, be free, and there's a God, and yet 
Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a partner. He needs intimacy. And so we rightly need intimacy. I think there's a primal desire and bent in our hearts for it. But what happens is, is that we try to seek it out ourselves. And this intimacy becomes corrupted because this intimacy is founded in self and man, but not God. And this is why sexual morality and impurity are the works of the flesh. See, living in the flesh begins in corrupted intimacy that leads to complete isolation. How does this work? Okay, so we start trying to please ourselves, trying to meet our own base need of intimacy. But then that fails us, right? So then Paul goes on and says, idolatry and witchcraft. Yes, but what is more underneath idolatry and witchcraft, when we find this intimacy that we're trying to live out a man doesn't work, well, this leaves us empty, and then we find something higher. We know we need something higher. So we seek gods outside of ourselves. We create idols of things. Or we practice witchcraft and we find, try to find the God inside ourselves. We know that we need something. Something that calls us forward. But again, we find anything but the God who created us. And so we set off for these other gods, but they also don't work. And then that leads us to hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. And when we go beneath that, what we see is these things serve us, Right? Until someone or something challenges our gods, we create these fake, these fake gods. We create these celebrities. We create uh, these persons that we think have it all. We create these systems of, of, of self-holiness, right? And those work, can work for a very long time until they get challenged. And then that leads us to some confusion internally and externally. And then we have jealousy, maybe towards those who outwardly have a peace that we crave or have privileges to inoculate them from the pains we encounter. And so hatred comes, discord comes, jealousy comes, and all this pain we collected piles up until it comes spilling out in fits of rage. It's this cycle of self-redemption. So that's why it's interesting that after the fits of rage, the cycle just starts all the way back over. Selfish ambition. Again, we try to fill ourselves by fulfilling our view of self. I think it's quite prescient that Paul includes selfish ambition because ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. And we can be tempted by looking at these acts of the flesh to believe that this is only when we do the bad thing. But yet, we can do good things in a way that bring about death. And so when we try to fill ourselves by fulfilling our own view of self, we have this ambition that seeks to serve us. It continues the cycle just as that corrupted intimacy of sexual immorality. And this then kicks back into more broken relationships and jealousy, dissensions, factions, and envy. This is the cycle of hatred, discord, and jealousy. And then all this brings us back into leaking pain through drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And this is the second observation. Living in the flesh is a cycle of death. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. They have different names, different stories, but it's kind of the same old thing, right? We know that brokenness. 
And all this then, Paul says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that corrupted intimacy finds its fulfillment and completed in complete isolation. Because God doesn't force himself upon us. No. He gives us what we want. And so if we want ourselves and we reject him, well, he finds himself way too precious and his kingdom way too precious to, him, to give it to those who reject it. And so he gives us the isolation that we can't seem to let go. But the question is, what if we want out of this cycle? Like, what if we're sick and tired of being sick and tired? Like, maybe you've unpacked your history and have found yourself on the scarred end of someone else's cycle of, of fleshly living. And maybe you've examined your life and you've stuck in your own endless loop of brokenness, right? So when you read verses 22 to 23, when Paul says it is possible to have a life defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, and those are flowing without limit, the natural question is how is this possible without striving? Particularly in a city like this, how can anything good come for free? Nothing good is free in this city. Okay. Peter Pan donuts are $1.50. That's about as close as you're going to get. <laughs> as close as you're going to get. So what do we do? How do we get this life without striving? What would that even look like? And this is where we find a great dichotomy, one brimming with hope, where in verse 19, Paul describes the cycle of the flesh as flowing from our works, the acts of the work are the acts of the flesh, as it says in the NIV and other translations, it says the works of the flesh, where this flows from our works. In verse 22, he describes these attributes of the Spirit, and he says, he describes them as fruit. Carpo, that Greek word there, means spontaneous fruit from like a tree or a vine. And so it appears that Paul is saying that this life that we seek isn't a result of work, but of relationship. Now, <clears throat> I am not a morning person. If you were wondering why we did not have a sunrise service on Easter, guilty. Uh, <laughs> I'm not like a, a very like late sleeper, like 7.30 feels like good to me, you know? But I'm, I, I, most of my life I've liked to wake up a little early and just kind of like ease into my day. I like a long ramp. And then I got a kid. And this guy, I don't know what time he gets up. I know that it's before me. <laughs> and so when I wake up, I usually wake up to the sounds of, Daddy, Mommy, it's the start of another day. <laughs> Real quote. But I remember when he was just an infant, and like, I definitely wasn't a morning person then. I had a job that was pretty easy and I could like set my own hours and so I took advantage of that long ramp. But then this child is born and we have this relationship that like he needs to eat and he has to be changed. And so what happens is in this relationship I have to get up at seven like or earlier. And what I found was that as in this relationship 
I began to get up, and it wasn't like it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. But it was necessary. And I wouldn't say at first it maybe felt like striving, but then it became a part of who I am. And so now, most days, 715 is a luxury. But it's okay. Because being in this relationship, it's called me into something. I can't really explain it for you. It's kind of a mystery. But I became a father, and somehow my life just kind of like had to rearrange my priorities. And it was worth it. And so I kind of got called into it. This grace was kind of placed on me like, hey, this is what, it's not really an option. It's just what I have to do. So I was called into something, but then something was called out of me. I kind of became a morning person. And it doesn't seem like so much of a struggle because it's flowed in the context of a relationship. I still love to sleep in there, don't get me wrong. But you see what I'm saying? This relationship, it fundamentally changes us. This, this mystery, I think this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, uh, on the night of Passover, uh, so he sets his table and he, he feeds the disciples, and then he gives them this discourse, right? And so he, he's kind of like, he knows that his time is nearing the end, and so he wants to give them this final, like, this is what you need. This is the, you know, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose speech. And in the middle of that, Jesus says this. This is John 15. He says, verse 4, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is telling the disciples that you have to come into relationship with me. And that if you abide in me, then what's going to happen is our relationship is going to call you into something, and it's going to call some things out of you. And the things that it calls, calls out of you, what we call those fruit. And fruit is great. But fruit is kind of an affirmation of a good tree. If you're, you know, my wife and I, we've been beyond privileged to have some backyards and our time in New York City. And, and uh, you know, we have uh, in our old place, the neighbor two doors down, he had this peach tree. I'm from South Carolina. I love a peach. Here's a fun fact. Georgia is the peach state. South Carolina produces more peaches. The, the more you know. Yeah. The more you know. So I love a good peach, right? Now... You could take and go put uh, 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 a basket of some nice, beautiful South Carolina peaches in my backyard, and I would be internally grateful. I would. I would. But my neighbor, two doors down, had a peach tree. He got peaches like every year. I want the peach tree, not just the peaches. So we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, and those are great, but it's just the fruit 
We need the tree. This is what Jesus is saying. The entrance into these life, bearing these fruits, is a surrendered work of entering a relationship with Jesus. This is why for our community, we are community-centered at the intersection of the contemplative and the charismatic. What do those words mean? Well, contemplative, it refers to uh, the desert fathers and mothers, this, this uh, ancient church practices of, of, of ancient church way of living out spiritual practices in order to abide with Jesus. And so we have something called the Good Way Year. If you don't know about it, you will be introduced, introduced to it in short order. But it's about creating a rule of life right? And a rule of life is essentially uh, the intentional ways that we structure and order our days. But, and this is based around spiritual practices like works of justice, around active participation in the family of God, around pursuing uh, uh, mental, emotional, spiritual health, right? And so we have eight core practices that we practice as a part of this church. But these practices, what they do, they don't save us. All they do, this contemplative way of living, all it does is allow us to be intentional about ordering around our days around abiding with Jesus because our practices should lead us into abiding. Our practices lead us into communing. I practice silence and solitude because when I am still, I can hear the voice of God. I practice justice in all my activities because when I do, I am reminded that my gifts are not my own. And that just as I have been freely given, I give. Just as Jesus does. And so I understand better who Jesus is. I meet him in the poor and the orphan and the widow. Our practices allow us to commune. And when we commune, that then produces fruit. So that's the contemplative. But then we have the charismatic. Because this fruit, well, this fruit, it's from the Spirit. We abide in Jesus. He has given us his Spirit. And the Spirit produces fruit. And so we create spaces where we harvest those fruits and gifts. We set times where we push into the Spirit in order to testify to one another that Jesus is Lord. This is what the gifts, this is what the fruit, all these things from the Spirit, they just testify Jesus is real, that his confession is real, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we live ordered lives so the Holy Spirit can bring us fruit that testifies that we are truly abiding with Jesus. And the world gets to see and say, wow, that is the best farmer's market I've ever witnessed. what are these fruits? I think there's something in there. Paul says in 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I think there's something really telling and beautiful about life here. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. That word there in the Greek is agape. Of the three loves, agape, filio, uh, eros, there we go. Uh, agape is this love that's defined as a godly love. 
It is the love by which God loves man, and then man loves God. So the fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit, is that God gives us the love to love him. What an amazing thing. For those who've been in relationships, imagine what it would be like if your partner was like, hey, uh, here's, here's how you can love me today. You could make me breakfast in bed, and you, know, you could uh, go take out the garbage, and I've already done all these things, but uh, you can just take the credit for it. Like, you can just join in, right? I'm going to make the breakfast, and you can just kind of bring it to me on the table. How about that? And you'd be like, sure. I mean, if, if that counts. <laughs> Seems like a trick, but... <laughs> God's fruit is the ability to love him. So we have the first gift, this first fruit, is this God-centered attribute. This agape love. And then these next seven gifts are all man-centered. By abiding with Jesus and by resting in the Spirit, he produces a fruit then that allows us to live in community. And it makes sense that we need seven of those. And so he gives us joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. I think that's important on weeks like the one we just came off of. Uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a wild week. So on Friday, you know, obviously the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. I'm not ignorant to that. Uh, maybe you were expecting, I don't know what you were expecting, um, statement or some like position and I'm not going to give either of those to you in this moment and, and the reason why is because I think prudence dictates that we don't do passionate things uh, like talk about complex issues like right to life and autonomy of women in impassionate ways like me sitting here talking to you and not with you right and so we do passionate things in passionate ways uh, and so we're not going to I'm not going to dive into I'm happy to make space I'm happy to sit over coffee and to hear and to listen, to cry, rejoice, whatever you need to do, I'm happy to hold that space. But from here, what I want to point us to is that on weeks like this, divisions become apparent. In a room this size, we don't all see last Friday the same way. Right? And so then when we talk about the, being the family of God, well, what does that mean then? Because I don't know, I've been in some families, I've been around some families where you've, you see things different and you're like, we just won't talk about those things. And then you have a family of secrets and hidden aggressions and cold shoulders and all manner of dysfunction that flows from that. And then I've been around families where you talk about everything and you devour each other. So what does it look like for us trying to be a family of God and we don't all see these things differently? Well, I think this is where the fruits of the Spirit meet us. Because what they do is we have to then say, how do I find Jesus in these things? Jesus, how do you make sense of last week in these Supreme Court rulings? Jesus, how do I see through your eyes? How do I abide with you? 
and then you allow me to move towards my brother or my sister in forbearance, patience, peace. How do you help me understand joy? Gentleness, kindness. I think of the, the Passover table again where Jesus gives this, this discourse. You have to remember who's sitting there. On one side you have Matthew, this tax collector, who has embraced the colonization of Rome. He's an active participant in it. He's a tax collector stealing from his own people. And then on the other side, you have Simon the Zealot, who's like, I was going to say something inappropriate. Uh, (laughs) You know, screw the centurions. (laughs) He's like down with Rome. These men are ideological miles apart on things that really matter on things that have to deal with their personhood and identity, their understanding of the world. And in the middle of them is a Jesus that is breaking bread and pouring wine and calling them out of their ideologies and into a new kingdom. And they're able to share a table. So I think it's okay that we have various amounts of opinions in this room about this past week. But I think what is necessary for this not to become a dysfunctional family in one way or the other is that for each of us, in moments like these and in all moments, we go to the abiding call of Jesus. So that out of that, he then produces fruit that brings about unity. Unity isn't necessarily about agreement. Unity is saying we may disagree, but I will choose you over my disagreements. I think this is what it means to be a free people. That we don't have to take up our arms. But we also don't have to stick our heads in the sand. But we can work this stuff out together under the lordship of Jesus which produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control, that's the last fruit. So we have this one God-centered love, this one God-centered fruit. We have these seven man-centered fruits. And then lastly, we have self-control. And it's very interesting that we end on self-control. Because that word there often in the Greek, what it refers to is one being able um, to practice mastery over sexual desires, right? Uh, And and that's kind of fitting when you go back to the list of vices and the tenor of sexual impurity. But I think there's something different, there's something uh, deeper than that. It's not just about sex, this fruit of the spirit. See, Paul says earlier that Uh, that sex, sexual immorality, is one of the only sins that we actually do against ourselves. We sin against our own bodies. 
And so when self-control becomes a fruit of the Spirit, what it is saying is that by abiding with Jesus, he gives us the ability to love ourselves well and to not sin against ourselves. Yes, that can be in sexual impurity. Maybe that's in the other ways that we've denigrated ourselves or puffed ourselves up too much. But he gives us self-control. The ability to start the cycle again. To not become a slave to sin, but to move back into a love for him that calls us into freedom. And so just as the, the flesh is a cycle of death, the fruit of the spirit become a cycle of life. So that's what it means to be a free people. God is inviting us to join the story of a free people. The band can come back up and get us ready for worship. This is a story the Lord's been crafting all along. It started in a garden where everything existed beside him, through him, and for him. And then we tried to go it alone, and we made a right mess of it all. And now he has made a way back into unity through Jesus. But the question is, will you join him or will you keep going it alone? Will you stay in your cage of slavery? Or will you walk into the freedom that the Son provides? There's this uh, movie, Django Unchained. Maybe you've seen it. I'm a Tarantino fan. Uh, and it's about this slave that gets free and goes on this vengeance tour. That's not the point. Uh, near the end of the movie, there's a scene where uh, he, he comes across these uh, enslavers and they're carrying uh, these men in cages and he, he kills them all and he opens the cage so that they can be free. And then the movie goes on and then there's this little scene at the very end and it's those men who have been freed, the cage is open and they're just, they're sitting there because they don't really know what to do they're faced with this choice all they've known is slavery all they've known is what happens if they try to leave that cage, that it's hard and yet freedom is freely offered to them. The door is open. But until they make the choice to walk out of it, they will stay enslaved. In Jesus, the cages of our hearts have been opened. The cages of our minds have been loose. The cages in our bodies have been undone. But the question is, will we walk out of them? It is for freedom you have been set free, beloved. Would you stand with me? Here's what I want to do. In a second, we're going to respond. And we're going to sing to God and we're going to give him thanks for this freedom that is founded in him. And then we have these, these, these rugs. And these are just designated spaces where you can come and do with your body what your mind and your heart are doing. 
or you can assume the posture of surrender, the posture of praise and adoration, whatever you need to do. And there's people who will be standing ready to pray for you. But here's the invitation. We're at the end of the six months. I don't know what the journey's been like for you. I've, I've talked to some of you, and I know that the Lord's been moving over these last six months. It's been beautiful to behold. But I just want to give this, this like, kind of invitation because I feel sometimes we need, like, these defining moments, these, like, these event horizons where we cross over. I just want to make space right here in the front. Maybe if you're honest, you are well aware of the cages that you've been placed in in your past. And also, maybe you're like, if I'm honest, I know that I've built some cages around my own self. But maybe it's a day is a day that you want to believe that the door is open and that freedom has been bought for you. Maybe today is the day that you say, I want to abide with you, son Jesus, and I want your fruit to come teeming out of my life. And if that's you, if you want to make that confession, if you just want to say today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the necessary time, I want to say and I want to make a proclamation that I want to abide with Jesus and I need you, I need your agape love to help me love you. I need these fruits to help me love the people beside me. I need your spirit to help me love myself. If that's you, I just want to invite you up right here to the front. And what's going to happen, members of our prayer team who are going to come forward now, they're just going to come and they're just going to say a simple blessing over you, brother, sister. It is for freedom you have been set free. And they're just going to pray over you. And they're just going to affirm what the Lord has already done in your life. So would you come? Would you receive? There's room for you. So come. Let's respond to the Lord our God. Jesus, thank you for your freedom. Thank you for your freedom. We want more of you, Lord, and we want more of your spirit.